We serve such a great and good Father. I hope you know that today. Would you turn with me uh, in your Bibles uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 1? We're going to be reading starting at verse 3, kind of an extended reading today, but couldn't cut into the story without reading it all together. So join with me in 1 Samuel chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. In verses 1 and 2, we've been introduced to Elkanah and Hannah and Peninnah, his two wives, and we pick up the story from God in verse 3. Year after year, this man, that is Elkanah, went to his town to worship, up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her, room, her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord, and she made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Let's pray. Lord God, you're speaking to us today through your word, through communion, through the music, through our company together, through your spirit. So continue to do that, we ask today. May your word, may your truth, May the goodness of who you are touch us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was an elementary-aged boy a um, long time ago, I checked out a book on 1 Samuel, a children's or a young person's Bible story book, and I, re I checked that thing out over two or three years, many, many times, and I reread the stories of 1 Samuel again and again and again. And I was always intrigued by David and, and all the stories of, you know, the, the kingdom and stuff. And I'm still intrigued by this book of the Bible today because 
It's God revealing to us his redemption story. It's a piece of the puzzle of how God is working to save his people. And he wants us to know this. And he wants us to understand how he's working and to be encouraged by it. How he's rescued, and that's what redemption means. Redeeming means to rescue or to deliver. He wants us to know and remember how God has delivered and saved his people in the past. So that we don't lose heart in the middle of our struggles and trials and troubles and concerns and worries and raising children and finding work and and just worried about the world and our nation and all that's going on around us in the hallways at your school and all the pressures we're feeling, young and old, he wants us to know that he loves us and he's there and he will not forget his people. One of the th- great themes of 1 Samuel, or the book of Samuels, First and 2 Samuel, is that God reigns absolutely as the sovereign king. And in this book, we learn and we see what it looks like when we believe that and embrace it. And we also learn what it looks like when we resist that. Now, you can believe in all your heart that there is no God or that he's not on the throne, that he's not ruling, and that's a possibility, but the reality is you can believe it, but you'll never change the truth. You'll never dethrone God. He is in charge, and he will win. Rather than resisting God, though, we learn from, first, from the lessons in 1 Samuel that God's inviting us to be a part of his kingdom and to share in it. I turn again to Matthew chapter 11. We looked at it last week. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that's what we learn, are going to be learning today about Hannah's life. She took on God's yoke of grace. And she had victory. Well, we have victory. The triumph of a person is that God triumphs over them. Those who walk by faith with God will share in the joy of his victory. Those who resist the Lord will share in the wrath of his victory. There are three main characters in the book of Samuel. Guess who the first one is? Samuel. (laughs) And then there's King Saul, and then there's King David. And there's all these other people that are put next to them, the three main characters, important people that are going to be compared to them, to one another. And God does that so that we learn. He puts these people side by side so we see what faith looks like, so we see what it's like to put on the yoke that Christ offers us and what it means and what, what, what blessing comes because of it. And we see what happens when we resist that. So... With that introduction and quick review, let's get back to our story in 1 Samuel. First, we want to look at the roots, Samuel's roots. And again, there's obscure places and people. Ramathaim, that's the land. It's only mentioned here. That's a place. 
probably a little north of Jerusalem. The location locates so Elkanah was probably a Levite or related to people who worked at the tabernacle. They were in a priestly line. And you know what? I can hardly pronounce a lot of these names. Our eyes glaze over sometimes when we read all these names and places that mean nothing to us, but I just want to remind us all that God knew these people, and he knows those places, just like he knows Havertown or whatever town you live in around here, whatever block you live on. He knows every person, so these people were important to God, just like I'd like to believe that you're important to God, too. And me too. And we are. He still knows these people by name. Because even though they're dead, they're living somewhere, someplace. This is how God works. It's not a man with a large family, but it's a man by the name of Abram who got his name changed to Abraham who had no children. And he only had two sons, and yet it's from him that he builds a kingdom, a, a great nation. It's not the firstborn, it's not Cain, it's Abel, it's not Esau, it's Jacob. It's not the older, bigger, wiser, good, handsome-looking sons, but it's little David that he chooses as king. It's not the powerful nations, it's a little nation. It's a, a nobody nation. It's the Israelites, a stiff-necked, stubborn people that God uses to bring glory to his name, to bring his Messiah into existence. It's not the mighty, but those who, who surrender by faith that God uses. Because God sees the heart, your soul. And he knows if you believe in him or not. He knows if you're depending on him or not. And what we say we believe is important, but how we act upon what we say we believe really demonstrates our faith. And it's the difference between sharing in God's triumph or sharing in his wrath. And that's where we are with Hannah. So that's a little bit of uh, the background or the roots of Samuel. I'd like us to take a minute, though, and look at a father's spiritual leadership because it's easy to overlook Elkanah because Hannah's the focus here. It's not the guy, it's the girl that's the focus here. We can overlook him because we don't know very much about him, but we know his life in light of Judges chapter 21, the last verse. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. That's how the book of Judges ends. And then we flip over to Samuel, and we're picking up the action there. They're living in these times, in this transition time from judges to, to kings to be the leaders. And we don't know a lot about Elkanah, but we do know this guy went to worship the Lord year after year. In other words, he wasn't a creaster. Do you know what a creaster is? Somebody who comes to church on Christmas and Easter. He was there year after year faithfully. So God doesn't give us the details, but we have to pick it up by hints that this guy probably wasn't trying to earn, and we're going to see that not next week because I'm on a winter retreat next week, but the following week, that he was a man of faith, that he really did believe in God, and he led his family to worship God regularly. I don't think he was doing it out of religious duty, 
although that was his duty, he was doing it because he wanted to honor his God. This was likely the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a time to celebrate the harvest, the fruitfulness that God had blessed the nation with. And we know that this man had two wives, not God's best, but it was never condemned in the Old Testament. But the desire to carry on an heir, to have family, to be rooted in the promised land, because in the promised land was the promise of all the blessings. So he wanted to have family. So we can surmise that Hannah was his first wife, was not able to bear children, so he married a second wife so that he could have an heir, so that he could have a family. I want to look at verse 8. Elkanah, her husband, would say to Hannah when she was crying and weeping, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? At first appearance, it looks like Elkanah is being a very insensitive husband. As a matter of fact, I've been told this a few times, that I need to re-enroll or enroll in a husband school refresher course. <laughs> and, it's, and it's true. Seems like he's not getting it. It seems like uh, maybe he was weary of the drama. There's this great poster in my doctor's waiting room. This is just a little hint, guys, whether you're a husband or not. Surveys show that women who carry a few extra pounds live longer than the men who mention it. <laughs> That's your refresher course for the day, man. <laughs> but really, this goes back to Genesis chapter 30, when Rachel, who was married to Jacob, his first love, was not able to bear children. And she said to him, give me children or I'll die. The disgrace of not having children in that culture and time was so important. It was like you were a failure. I was not being the wife I need to be that I promised to be. And, and you know, dreams were shattered of probably of all their expectations. And Rachel was feeling that. And Jacob looked at her and said, who am I, God? And I think that's what Elkanah was saying here when he said, am I not more to you than ten sons? Really what he was saying and there's a few commentators that back my thoughts up on this is, don't you understand I'm not in charge of this? That you got to just believe that God loves you and that I love you, Hannah, whether you give me one son or ten sons or no sons. You are my beloved wife. That is a great picture of our heavenly father, our husband. Because the church is his bride, Christ's bride, and he loves us, and he cares for us. He died for us. It's the way God loved Israel, who was unfaithful to, to him as a nation. The way, husbands, we are to love our wives. Whether they fulfill our dreams or not, or entrusted to God. His obedience and faithfulness translated into great blessing, not only for his family, for his beloved Hannah eventually, but for the nation and the world. 
I just want to remind us, people of God, that like the Old Testament, they had instructions like be here, worship here, go to festivals and feast so often to remember your God. Jesus has done the same for us. He tells us that we need to be together to worship, to learn, to remember the Lord's death and his resurrection. He reminds us about forgiving one another and carrying one another's burdens and about being accountable to one another. He reminds us about seeking those who are going astray into sin. He reminds us about loving our spouses and honoring them. So if we want to hear God speak to us or lead us and guide us, then we need to be in the places that God's told us to be with the right attitudes. And that's what Elkanah did for his family. I don't know if he was a perfect He wasn't perfect. I know that. But he was a man that was in the right place so that God could speak and that his wife could be ministered to by God in the place where God had appointed to to especially be present with his people in the tabernacle. Do you want to hear God speak to you and to guide you? Then be with his people where he's commanded you to be. I need to move on. Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And we need to believe that. Families of faith have troubles, and they had lots of troubles. We look at Hannah's plight. We read already in verses 3 through 8 how she was not able to bear children. But we see now how God's grace can turn these personal troubles and struggles that Hannah was having into her life into eternal benefits. You see, that closed womb, and it said God had closed her womb. Talk about that with your friends sometimes, about God's sovereignty and how we work that out in our lives and our our ability to choose and do and the things we are responsible for, and yet God's totally sovereign and in control. So the closed womb was seen as a curse. Here's a feast celebrating fruitfulness and God's blessing at the end of harvest time, at the end of the summer, and every year that harvest celebration rubs salt into the wound of Hannah's empty womb in her soul, and her life. And I can imagine Peninnah, this other wife, rubbing Hannah's barrenness in deeply. She just rubbed it in. I thought your name meant grace or favor, and that's what Hannah means, grace or favor. Well, God seems to have forgotten you. Maybe you aren't so holy as it might appear. What secret sin have you done that I don't know about? I'm a gem. That's what Peninnah means, ruby. (laughs) And look at all the little gems I've produced for Elkanah. Hey, you may be his first love and get a double portion of meat, but I'll take the kids and the glory that that gives me any day over a double portion of prime rib and the shame of not being able to bear children. Can you hear her saying that? Rubbing it in? You know what, Peninnah forgot. She forgot that her fruitful womb was a work of God as much as Hannah's closed womb was. Isn't that the way we sinful people are? 
these abilities and gifts that we have, our good looks or our intelligence or athletic abilities or whatever skills we have that, that we've worked hard at maybe and strove for, but, you know, they're really gifts from God. And yet we get all prideful about it as if we had something to do with it. Peninnah missed that truth. She got up, caught up with the pride of the world, the flesh, her own flesh, and the devil, so to speak, boasting in herself and forgetting God. She didn't recognize God's sovereign reign over her life and the purposes for her. And you know what's sad about this? She and her children are never, ever mentioned again in the story. Why does God do that? Because he wants us to know that those who are prideful and do not recognize God and, and, and give him praise and the glory that he deserves are never mentioned again and are forgotten. You're left to wonder if they had faith at all. They were so close to it. Every year, Elkanah brought them. Did she and her family get it or did they miss it? It's a commentary on her life. And sometimes it's hard for us to think this, but there will be a day when God will say, I never knew you if you have not received him and believed him in faith. Like we kind of forget Peninnah and her family. But we remember Hannah because she had faith. And God loves people who trust in him. He raises them up and honors them. They don't earn it or deserve it but they receive his grace and they're changed. A surrendered heart. Hannah's spiritual battle. Here's this contrast between Hannah and Peninnah. Contrast be between belief and unbelief. Both would have children, but Hannah, because of her disgrace, turned to God in humility and then she found peace and grace and her life and her prayers changed God's didn't change God's story of redemption, but was part of God's redemption story. Let me just remind you today, people. Your life does matter to God, and you can have a part in his redemption story. In some form or fashion, he will use you, people of faith, to change other people's lives. Maybe a whole nation's life. I don't know what God has in mind, but he says, come to me, all you who are weak and weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Look to me, Jesus says. Trust in my death for your righteousness, because you don't have enough righteousness on your own to stand before God forever. Look to me in full trust for the strength you need to do what's right day by day. Daily dependent. Come to me, Hannah, and find rest. Believe I love you. Believe I care for you. You will not be disappointed. Surrender your life to me. Do you believe this, Hannah? Do you believe this? Do we really believe God loves us? Look at Hannah's prayer in verse, verses 9 through 20. She pours out her heart in verse 10. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you only look upon your servant's misery, remember me and forget not your servant, but give her a son. 
if you only look. God, look at me. Remember me. Do not forget me. Have you ever prayed in deep despair? Aren't your prayers like really real when you're in despair and you pour your heart out to God? You know, public prayers can be so superficial, but when you're alone in your closet, bearing your soul, it's just like you put it out there. God loves those kind of prayers. I just think of, Lord, teach us to pray. And here, God is using Hannah to teach us how to pray when we're in despair. Her prayer instructs us. She's weeping in the presence of the Lord. Oh, Lord Almighty, that's a new, a new, a new term used for God. It focuses on his ruling reign. It's earnest prayer. Her lips are moving, but the words aren't coming out. She's just so... Oh, intense. It's, it reminds me of Jesus being in the garden and, and it's Hannah's tears and it's Jesus' sweat drops. Lord, Father, take this cup away from me if there's any way possible. He was in turmoil. He was in despair. Her years of barrenness have convinced her if any children are going to be born to her, it's nothing going to be nothing short of a miracle of God. So she pours out her heart and she dares to make a vow. Do you know what it means to pray in Jesus' name? I'm only beginning to learn. I think I'd be further along by now. But the prayer of Hannah got off of her and for God. Pray great things for God, Hudson Taylor said, and expect great things from God. Don't... It doesn't say, he didn't say pray great things from God, but he said pray great things for God. And that's what Hannah's, that was the change that happened here. The focus now became not take away, give me a son for my glory so my shame goes away, but Lord, give me a son so that I can give him back to you so your name will be lifted up and glorified because our nation needs you terribly. So the focus got off of her and back to God, onto God, and then God began to move. Hannah was praying, by the way, intensely and fervently and genuinely in very spiritually dull times. How do we know that? Because Eli the high priest did not recognize faith nor earnest prayer when he saw it in the tabernacle. Here's a connect with communion today in the first Corinthians drunken parties. He thought she was drunk because her lips were moving and no words were coming out because that's what he was used to when they came to the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem or Shiloh at that time. He was used to parties, people partying and having a good time. A time set apart to worship God and to thank him turned into a human party, to get drunk, and to have a good time. But here's a woman who finally, in her brokenness, pours her life out to God and says, 
Lord, do something for your honor and glory. I'll give this son, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. So your name, so your people, so he will serve you so that your people can know you forever. You are a splendid and glorious ruler, Lord. I'm asking you for a son to help your people for your glory. There's so many lessons here. If spiritual leadership is dull and passionate prayer, think about what the sheep are going to be praying. Those are trying to train up. How weak and puny our passionate our prayer will be sometimes. But this is fervent prayer. It's a sign of dependence. And it's not Hannah's tears that gets God's attention. It's not her fasting, her not eating, but it's her surrender. It's her surrendering her heart to God. There are probably couples here today that have prayed this prayer for a child and God's maybe not answered. I have no way of knowing what that feels like, (laughs) nor the pain that someone might feel that desires a child so much. And I cannot even tell you why God would say no. But I do know this. If you dare to take on God's yoke and just accept the life that you have and surrender your heart to him, you will be amazed at what he might do to bless others through your surrendered life that you cannot think of or imagine right now if you only would believe. Do not underestimate parents' prayers for your children and the effect they can have on them while they're even in the womb before they're born if we give them back to God. Jesus did say, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. And I wonder how we are hindering them. And I don't mean not coming to church or midweek stuff, but how else do we hinder our children from knowing God? Look, remember, and do not forget me. And he doesn't. She didn't really need to remind God to not forget her because God never forgets his children. His eyes on the sparrow and I know he watches me. Do you know that song showing my age? She took a vow. She made a vow and it's a serious thing to do that. It's a trap for a person or a man to dedicate something rashly only later to consider his vow. Oh, I'll take that back. (laughs) You don't do that with God. In Psalm 116, it says, I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Would Hannah fulfill his vow, her vow? Well, we know she did. You know what's amazing about all this? Hannah leaves in peace. For the first time, years after year after year, she leaves that tabernacle after praying. I don't know if she ever prayed before, but I guess she did. But this time it was different. She surrendered and she gave her life, her heart, her son, the the son she was praying for back to God. It was a vow. I'm going to give him back. If you give him to me, I'll give him back to you, Lord, to serve you. She left in peace. She went back and she ate for the first time. And how many days, we don't know. She asked, she went seeking, she went knocking, and God was working in his redemption story 
Hannah was changed in a day. The nation was going to be changed in the days ahead. A king was going to be appointed. David, that's a picture of Jesus Christ. The line from whom David's line, from whom the Messiah would come. Amazing stuff. And she was a part of it because of faith. She named him Samuel, which is a play on words meaning I asked and he was given. So she was keeping her promise. Here's a few things I learned this week as I went over my sermon. God uses ordinary people, broken people, in spiritually dull times to advance his work of rescuing people from sin. Be a part of it. God's inviting us to be a part of it. God uses little things like Elkanah's faithfulness to the Lord to work his grace into the life of his beloved wife. And he was a part of that redemption story too because of his faithfulness. God invites us to do the same. Hannah's troubles and her natural desire for a child along with her faith in God were used to turn a whole nation, Israel, back to the Lord way beyond what she imagined. Is there something God's asking us to pray about, to ask for in fervent, passionate prayer that we know he wants us to, that we just ignore? Like, send more workers into the harvest fields. Send me into the harvest fields. Send my children into the harvest fields. What would he have us pray for his honor and glory. Is it coincidental that Hannah's prayer was answered after fervent, passionate, tearful praying? Doesn't earn God's attention fasting and praying necessarily, but when it's a surrendered heart in faith. What does James tell us? You get not because you ask not, and when you do ask, you ask for who? yourself rather than God's glory. Would you dare make a vow to the Lord today? That's serious business. I will follow you no matter where you lead me. Have you received from the Lord something good that you've asked for and have you let anybody know about it? Hannah was going to tell the world she kept her vow. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask you today to mold and shape us into the people that you would want us to be for your honor and glory so that your name will be lifted up, so that your redemption plan will come to fulfillment and we will see the glory of the Lord and rejoice in it. We pray this all in Jesus' wonderful and precious and holy name. Amen.